This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, every cop in every city can name a dozen spots within their jurisdiction that might they might call a hot spot or a place where drugs are sold, burglaries occur, or maybe where the next shooting will happen. It's not always easy to articulate why offhand, but Concepts like crime prevention through environmental design or SEPTED, and of course, crime maps can help. My guest today is Dr. Tamara D. Harold, and she's an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She received her PhD with an emphasis in crime prevention from the University of Cincinnati, and she uses the crime science perspective to study the criminological impact of the design and management of places as well as crowd and neighborhood dynamics associated with violence. Her publications translate theory and research evidence into practice and policy. Her book, Preventing Crowd Violence, has been translated into two foreign languages. She's published numerous practitioner-focused research papers, including two problem-oriented policing guides funded by the COPS office, and three strategies research monographs recognized for their effectiveness in reducing school violence, property crime in vulnerable communities, and neighborhood gun violence. She recently spoke at the IACP conference and has an article in the IACP journal, Spotlighting Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Tamara Harold. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. And I want to start by saying, you know, I want to thank you. I've used your IACP research and brief article, Place-Based Investigations to Disrupt Crime Place Networks. I use it in my crime and data class to give students an idea of what it means to use data and analytics to help show these uh, crime hotspots. And sometimes, you know, I think it's really helpful for police when they talk to communities about this is why we're doing uh, hotspot policing here or or doing, um, you know, active, aggressive patrols in these areas. It's it's for prevention. And prevention is, is often hard to quantify. But your kind of research, uh, you're at the NIGA now, um, your research is really helpful. Uh, what led you to investigating place-based crime and violence? It's a great question, Jim. And, and as you said, my background is in an area known as crime science or environmental criminology. And so people like myself, we typically try to explain why does crime happen at one location, but not another. And I was asked in 2015 by the city of Cincinnati to help them develop a new gun violence reduction strategy. Every politician wants something new. Every police chief is looking for the panacea. And um, I, I really couldn't promise either of those, but I said I would give it a shot. And what we did as a team, instead of asking, why does gun violence concentrate in some locations and not others? We started with a different question. We asked, why does gun violence always concentrate in the same locations over time? 
So why do they persist? Why do these hot spots persist? And when I was a doctoral student, I loved to go on ride-alongs. I've spent more time in patrol cars than I, I should admit. Um, and so I, every new jurisdiction, I'd go out on a ride and some poor person would get stuck with me. And we'd have the awkward banter and conversation. And then, you know, I, I'd, I'd ask the officer, he or she, I would say, where should I go tonight if I want to get mugged in your jurisdiction? Like, where, where is that hot spot? And they immediately perk up and they take me to all the nicest places in their city, right? They take me to those locations and I would say, how long has it been that way? And they'd say, as long as I've been on the force. And that might be 20, 30 years. And that was a challenging problem for me from a scientific perspective. How could we explain that? Because certainly police have devoted resources to these hotspots in the past. Cities have devoted resources to these places. Why does crime stick? So Thomas App uses this phrase about crime being sticky to hotspots, places and people. Crime sort of sticks. Why does crime stick in these locations? And so that was the, the background. That was the question that was formulating in my mind when we were trying to figure out, you know, how could we study this differently? What could we do differently in these locations? And as it, it helped inspire us to ask a completely different series of questions that led to this new investigative model that we adopted. Yes. So, so in your research, uh, was it, um, uh, what kind of statistics did you look at? What, were they all quantifiable, qualifiable? Uh, was it, was it really sort of anecdotal from, from these officers that you're riding along with, or did you use their technology and things like shot spotter maybe? We did not use ShotSpotter, but we did use incidents and calls for service related to gun violence in, in particular. And everybody knows crime concentrates, right? There are just pockets of crime in different locations. We wanted to find those pockets in the city of Cincinnati that had disproportionate amounts of gun violence concentrated in very small, what we called micro locations. And we were looking for micro locations that had been there over time, that had been there for decades. And we wanted to look inside and dissect, if you will, those hotspots and figure out what is it about that place or that, that micro hotspot that allows crime to stick there. So we were using certainly um, all of the available police data to do this. Now I can tell you that when we identified what ended up being 23 of these micro locations across the city of Cincinnati, and we showed that map to patrol officers, detectives, and others, not one of those locations was a surprise. So anecdotally, we might have ended up in those same locations, but we wanted to ensure that we were being data-driven, evidence-based, that we were using true crime statistics. And, and so I think both perception and data, they both matched um, as we were, we were looking for the places that we wanted to, to try to intervene in. Yeah, and that sort of follows uh... You know, policing in general, um, like when a, you, you read a police, you know, as a supervisor, you look at a police report and the officer can't articulate the reason for the stop. And yet something led him to believe that the individual was carrying a gun. But when you break it down, like you say, when you break it down into micro um, behaviors, th then they sort of realize as they're talking, they there were indicators. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great analogy because when we started looking at these locations, certainly it was the place where the gun violence was occurring that created that hotspot on that map. 
right? And we were able to look at, you know, long-term trajectories of these hotspots. But when you'd say, well, why are these hot for so long? This is where I, I would hope my expertise as an academic actually came in handy. Uh, it, it helped us to frame what we were looking at, what we were thinking about. And there had been some recent advancements in crime theory that suggested not just the crime sites, but other places that offenders use might be really, really important. So there's this typology, that's four CSs. You have the crime site, right, which is what shows up on those crime maps. Then we have what are called convergence settings. And these are places, these are public places where offenders congregate. So think of, you know, it might be a, a, a street corner or a local bar or out in front of a convenience store or an alleyway. So you might find offenders congregating in these convergent settings, right? And then we have what are called comfort spaces. And comfort spaces are like convergent settings. We have offenders congregating in these locations, but they're privately controlled and they're often very hidden and they, we do not, they do not want these locations to come to the attention of law enforcement. They're not showing up necessarily on crime maps because if there's any sort of illicit market associated with these hotspots, so imagine I'm moving drugs, weapons, humans in the case of human trafficking. These are my comfort spaces that I'm gonna use to store whatever that product is or move that product. And so these could be apartments, these could be the backs of storefronts if you've got a manager that will allow uh, an offender group to use those locations for those purposes, could be houses. Uh, and then the final CS is what we call our corrupting spots. And these are businesses that are usually operating with legitimate business licenses that are driving crime in that general area. And so you could think about uh, maybe a corner store that's buying and selling stolen goods that help to support that illicit market. They could be laundering money. They, you know, I, I think about Las Vegas after the economic downturn of 2008. I arrived in Vegas about that time as a young professor and at the time, copper theft was rampant. Now we're dealing with catalytic converter theft, right? And so I would look at a, a hotspot map for copper theft and the whole city would light up. So, you know, if you could put a cop on every catalytic converter, I suppose we could, could deter catalytic converter theft, but that's impossible. Really, it's these corrupting spots that are basically driving that, that catalytic converter theft across the city or the, the copper theft across, across the city, they'll accept that metal and recycle that metal without asking many questions. And so it really sets up the market for all types of illicit behavior uh, across the city. So when you look at a hotspot, a persistent gun violence hotspot in a community, you look for that, that network of places, all of those locations. And so the reason I loved your analogy, you can't articulate maybe exactly why you did that stop. We know those places are hot. We know gun violence concentrates there. And if you start explaining these places to any patrol officer, they'll say, you're right. There's actually a, a store over here that's selling paraphernalia and facilitating a lot of this behavior. And yeah, there is this convergent setting where people are hanging out and you're right. You know, we've made a couple of busts at some, some of these nearby residences. And so we know, and you start putting these things together, but without intentional investigations to uncover that entire place network, we usually don't uncover the whole network. Or even if we do, we don't really know what to do with it. And interestingly, 
patrol officers can identify many of these locations without the investigations, you know, initially, but so can community members. And so police working directly with the community to uncover these place networks ends up being really helpful. And the community can provide all sorts of insight because they're watching what offenders are doing in their communities every single day. Yeah, 100% on that last one and uh, the corrupting spots. And I love the tie-in with the community because you can have patrols going up and down blocks all day long, but until they see the pattern and the communities are the ones that recognize, you know, residential community where, you know, single males are going up into a house uh, 20, 30 minutes leaving another car pulls up 20, 30 minutes leaving, right? And they could recognize that pattern and, and and communicate with the police. Hey, something's going on in this in this place. Um, and there are other examples like that where the community may spot it, but uh, a storefront that's dealing in stolen merchandise and things like that. Um, we've sent decoys in on tips and um, they are uh, secret spots because usually the the um, proprietor is savvy enough to determine um, to build trust with somebody trying to sell them stolen merchandise that they're not just doing it out the front door or else we would notice them a lot sooner absolutely and and they play a critical role and what's interesting is these networks when offenders establish these networks they are establishing them in our most vulnerable and disadvantaged communities so people will say it's poverty that drives violence. And I take exception to that to some degree because there are many people who live below the poverty line that are not engaged in of any of these behaviors, right? And you, even inside of these micro hotspots, most people simply are sheltering in place, trying to go about their, their business, trying to live their lives and, and be good, productive residents, citizens, business owners, but what happens is because of the vulnerability, because they lack the resources, offenders can set up these networks, these place networks much more easily. The turnover in these locations help to hide a lot of their activities as well. And so this is why you'll find these persistent violent hotspots in some of our most disadvantaged communities and not in our more affluent communities. Yeah, and it's, absolutely. it's critical that we do something about that, right? Because we can send police officers in and deter behavior. Hotspots policing can, can be very, very effective. We know that. Lots of research shows. Cops count. When police are present, we can have a, a significant deterrent effect. But what happens is if we oversaturate a neighborhood or we're not paying attention to exactly what we're doing when we're sending officers into these locations, we can really strain police community relationships where really we can use hotspots policing to stabilize a neighborhood to help control some of that violence. But long-term, we wanna build resiliency back into that community. And what that requires is figuring out how offenders are using space, identifying that network and removing their opportunities to use that network in a community. Yeah, well said. So going back to rating these hotspots or these problem areas, what kind of criteria did you use to rate locations? So. Was it the sheer number of incidents or complaints? How'd you rate them? Yeah, so it was police data, and we were looking at uh, the number of incidents that had occurred. And we also looked at time between incidents. So 
those that happen more frequently, and also the seriousness. So the number of homicides and shootings, so somebody actually being shot in a location, uh, those locations obviously were given priority over maybe where we just had some shots fired and there was some gun violence, but there wasn't as much harm being committed as a result of it. So we wanted to initially, when we were picking pilot locations, identify spots where we needed intervention and we needed it now. Yeah, so that that makes me think about the relationship of other agencies, not just the police agencies that you're recording data from, but also associated city agencies. Did you get information or cooperation from Department of Public Works, libraries, park and rec, um, public health, maybe, um, you know, abandoned uh, houses where people are shooting dope or they're running some other illegal activity? It's such a great question. And it's interesting, a long time ago, uh, I had a colleague named Joe Claire, and he has a background in a lot of fire science and fire data. And so we thought to map, um, and, and we were not the first to do it, and he was not the first, but he engaged in this up in Canada. He had mapped crime data on top of fire data and interestingly, same exact hotspots. So these communities where we have a disproportionate number of gun violence incidents occurring, we also have all sorts of other uh, quality of life, health-related issues happening at the same time. And so what we did, once we identified the specific locations, and once we put together an investigative team, and these investigative teams are very impressive because you think about what you need for this team. You need to be tactically sound. These are the most dangerous locations in your city. So you better be really good at what you do. You need a great investigative background. And we wanted diversity. We wanted people who had backgrounds maybe in financial crime because you can follow the money in some of these locations to figure out what this network looks like. You, know, you wanted somebody maybe with a background in vice and narcotics that understands the complexities of those investigations. So you pull this team, this diverse team of investigators together you work with the community. So that's the third thing. You need to be great with community relations, right? Because you're working hand in hand with the community to identify these networks, send the investigators out, identify the places that matter inside of those persistent micro hotspots, then take that intelligence back to a larger city level board. Mm. And this was the greatest part of this, right? So city manager is sort of the, the person that holding everybody accountable across the city to show up because a lot of other departments don't think public safety is their problem. Traffic and engineering, buildings and inspections, you go down the list and they're saying, that's a police function. That's not our function. But the city manager says, no, all hands on deck, right? We have people who are dying in our communities from gun violence. We are going to focus and prioritize our resources in these places. And interestingly, where a lot of their complaints come from are these exact same locations. So what we're able to do is show these investigative products and say, here's how the offenders are using spaces. How can we problem solve? How can we pull our resources together to block the opportunities for offenders to be able to do this? So in one instance in Cincinnati where they had a stretch of road with a lot of drive-by shootings, the investigators working with the community realized on this particular roadway, there were a bunch of cars parked there. 
but they weren't any of the community members. Hmm. They were the offenders parking their cars along this roadway and then using the car sort of as a as a comfort space, right? Putting their their drugs and and guns and other things, storing them in the cars, and also using the cars as a barricade for drive-by shootings, right? So as other uh, gangs would come by and they're they're fighting over space and territory, they would use those cars sort of as barricades. And so traffic and engineering looked at that and said, we can do something about this. We can work with the community and change this parking footprint and not allow these offenders to park there. And so in tandem with the community, they use this problem solving model, understanding how offenders are using the space to really redesign what that environment looked like. And it was great because um, the lieutenant who's now captain in Cincinnati, who was in charge of the project said, as they were out there changing that parking footprint and working on this, other community members were coming out and saying, hey, could you increase that parking footprint to include this area over here because offenders are using this space too. Mm -hmm. So it really becomes uh, a partnership with the community, everybody working together to problem solve this. And, it, and it's not a panacea for all violence and all crime. But what we're doing is taking what was previously unmanaged space that allowed a lot of this opportunistic violence to occur in these areas and harm potentially innocent bystanders and children and plague these communities. And we are, we are taking control of that space again. And not only are we blocking the opportunity for offenders to use that space, one of our long-term goals is to really allow the community then to re-engage in that space and take it over and activate that space in a really positive way. As my friend Ethel Kogan, who does a lot of the community building around this says, you know, we're gonna give this back to the community. We're gonna take a negative space and not just turn it neutral, we're gonna turn it positive. And we're gonna allow, allow the community again to regain control of that location. And that eliminates this opportunistic violence. It's a really yeah. powerful model. Nice. Yeah, I want to investigate that a little bit more with you on we identify it, then what? Then what do we do afterwards? But first, I'd like to take a brief moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back and we're speaking with Dr. Tamara Harold, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I love your enthusiasm. Clearly, uh, you were built to do this kind of research and, and turn it into something usable, something that we could use. I love the your tie-ins with the community. Uh, and and you, you sort of alluded to it, but when other city agencies hear that term community policing, they love hearing that because they hear two words, community and policing. And, you know, they're dusting their hands off like, OK, our work's done here. Let's leave. But they really do have an active role to play. What about the city attorney? Did you ever get involved with city attorney identifying, sending liens or 
letters to locations to say, hey, clean it up, you're, you're a crime location? It's such a good question. And I would be remiss if I did not say that the city attorney in the city of Cincinnati was the probably the most powerful player at the table. We are not in the business of shutting places down necessarily. We really have to think about the impact on the community. Yes, our goal is to reduce violence and crime. But many of these places, including places that are involved in some of this activity, play a critical role in the community. So for example, in many of these persistent violent hotspots, they're food deserts. There's no place to get groceries. So that local convenience store is a critical part of that community. So the, the focus, the goal becomes, we might use legal measures to help encourage or facilitate compliance. And if we can't gain compliance, I guess in the end, we could seize the property or shut down these locations. But the goal is really to help these locations better manage these places, not be involved in a lot of this criminal activity. And so they're put on notice. And it is that city attorney who plays that that critical role. Yeah, yeah, they're great at uh, really, I mean, we, we're we often seen as the, the stick in the whole carrot stick uh, idea, but believe me, the city attorney has a bigger stick. Oh, it, and, and it's so nice. And, and that's the great thing about these all city teams or these boards that come together is that there are many resources out there, whether it's the city attorney, whether it's our inspections processes, whether it is public works or traffic and engineering. And what we find when we go in and do these investigations, there's all sorts of quality of life problems that residents and business owners are facing in these sort of disadvantaged areas. So what this allows this board to do is to think through how do we improve life for everybody in this location? And part of the investigations, you start uncovering things that the city, if they devoted resources to this, could really help improve quality of life for these people. So the role of the police officer in these locations when they're part of conducting these place network investigations changes because now they're seen as ambassadors to the community. They're going to the city board and they're saying, this community needs these resources. And there are no new resources in any community, right? The, the Calvary is not coming. We're stuck with what we've got for the most part, but what it allows us to do is better prioritize our resources. So I think of, cities that really struggle, for example, with vacant buildings that might become part of a place network that offenders might capitalize on that empty space and use that unmanaged space to conduct business. Well, there might be a list, you know, hundreds and hundreds of vacant buildings that need to be dealt with in terms of demolition. Under this model, when it's identified as part of a place network in one of those persistent violent hotspots, it simply goes to the top of the list. Hmm. So, this is contributing to harm and violence in our community, we're gonna prioritize this location. So it's a prioritization model. And again, it's not enough to administer the death penalty to places, right? And tear a building down. Because again, we've taken a negative space and turned it neutral. Now we need to think about, well, what could we do in place of that building that, that was just sitting there? And this is where that reactivation, you know, thinking through community space and how could the community use that where, what they did in Cincinnati was engage in what they called signature projects. So they allowed the community to kind of come up with, well, what is it that we really need in this location? Is it a community garden? Is it a skating rink for kids? 
you know, what, what, what would this look like? And a lot of people will say parks, but we all know, and you know this, Jim, in any jurisdiction, you put up a park, it could be used by children, but it can also be used by offenders as a convergent setting, right? People hanging out in these parks in this unmanaged space. They did something so cool in Cincinnati. They, they put up a park, uh, working with a, with nonprofit organizations, they built this park and a place for kids to play. But the other thing that they did, they had a um, rather large elderly population in this location too. So they built a walking track around the park. And so it's almost like elderly on patrol, right? These older people, and it's not really a space that you'd want to be in, right? If you're a violent offender, you've got these older people walking around the track, you've got kids playing in the park, so being very intentional and thinking through, you know, how do we build this, again, this resiliency into these, these spaces so that offenders don't just retake over those locations? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And it leads me to the next idea of broken windows policing, right? And the you'll hear a neighborhood or a community say, you know, all you're doing is gentrification, right? Mm -hmm. In a city like San Francisco, we have very few vacant buildings, if if there's any. But then you go to a city like Baltimore, I was I was uh, surprised to see all these vacant buildings. And to the point where I think they had like a vacant building response team or something like when one of these old buildings collapsed, there was usually, you know, uh, squatters inside or something else they had to search for. So I could see that. But but then the gentrification argument that you're just tearing down uh, houses that we could renovate and use for housing again, just to bring in people and build up a a new building where you're going to charge more rent, or you're going to charge um, more money uh, to buy it. How do we answer those critics who say that this is another version of broken windows and only pressures poor and minority communities? It's a, it's a great question because gun violence also only pressures poor and minority communities. And so we need to be as, and I just use this word intentional, but we need to be very intentional about what we're doing. And that gentrification argument is a valid argument because if we make spaces safe and clean, there's gonna be a lot of economic development. People will wanna capitalize on that. And it could very much change the nature of that community. It could increase rent prices. It could do all sorts of things because now this is a really um, attractive community to live in, right? Because it's not violent anymore. You know, there's changes have been made. This is why the community voice component of this particular strategy is critical because we really need to know what the community wants and they need to be at the table every step of the way. So economic development might be part of our PNI board, but they're listening very carefully to what the community says they need. And many times it's often um, recreational space for children or for community members. And, and also, as I mentioned previously, grocery stores, but no grocery store wants to open up in a place where gun violence is rampant. So once we're able to block opportunities for this opportunistic gun violence to occur in a community, now we have the capability at the city level to attract a local maybe mom and pop grocery store, or even a national chain, whatever the community really desires. And I'm, I'm using this term loosely and, and people um, who work in these locations know this community, we're assuming everybody has a single voice. There's often very many divergent ideas about what people want in their general community. And so it really is a process to work through to really say, okay, what will best serve the needs 
of the individuals that reside and, and work in these spaces. And so it is a process. Uh, it's not, there are no easy answers here, but I think when you have the community as an equal partner at the table, you're much less likely to face that criticism. And we, we shouldn't be naive. We talk about broken windows, small quality of life issues are of extreme importance to the people living in these locations. So often I'll find not only are people worried about the gun violence, they're usually also worried about traffic related issues. Mm -hmm. They'll say speeding is a huge problem in this location, right? And, and they'll describe all of these smaller quality of life issues that we think are smaller issues, but to them add up in a way that makes life very unpleasant makes life very challenging for themselves, their families. And so paying attention to those smaller things isn't necessarily a bad thing. But again, what we're doing is not trying to just suppress those things through massive doses of police enforcement. We're thinking long-term, we're thinking strategically, we're thinking about how we want to build up these communities. Yeah. And you talk about things like what's most pressing and uh, you know what the community wants, right? As opposed to something super serious, like a homicide, right? It's a, you know, high priority, but low frequency event in, in most, most cities, I would say. But um, this, the community might want something entirely different. If you were to give some advice, I want to wrap up. I, I'm so appreciative of your time. I want to wrap up and ask your advice to a new, to a city or an agency considering starting um a project looking at data, crime-placed uh, data, as opposed to the, the, you know, what most of us have used for a long time, watering hole activity, right? So ATMs and those corner grocery stores or places where the light's been out or the abandoned building where everybody knows what goes on in them. Uh, we've done those, you know, with anecdotal success, but how do we how do we start it and how do we, what's the continuity plan to make sure that we continue to um, go along with the program? Oftentimes, if we don't see immediate results, we abandon it. Or if it costs too much, we abandon it. And it's really hard convincing electeds and city leaders, uh, prevention programs, right? They want reaction. They don't, you know, we could have the best prevention programs, but then it loses fundings because it's not a hotspot anymore. And that's so counterintuitive. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the necessary elements to make this work, to really get something like this off the ground, is convincing people of the value. And you're going to need champions. So even in a police department where we're so driven by the radio, right, we respond to calls for service in some locations, whether or not this is true, right, officers will say, I have absolutely no discretionary time. Whether or not that's truly true, they feel that way. They're, they're constantly responding to calls for service. This prevention approach is gonna reduce those numbers of calls for service eventually, right? But it's getting the time and resources and other things. And one of the things that I point out is the same micro hotspot locations that are disproportionately impacting residents and, and business owners in these locations also negatively impact our officers. We are asking our officers to go back into these persistent violent hotspots day after day after day without addressing underlying conditions. From an officer safety and wellness perspective, this does not make sense. 
And so getting police leaders on board, I think it's important for them to acknowledge this. Officers are more likely to be injured or encounter high risk encounters that are likely to lead to injury in these same locations. So let's, let's do something about this. Second, partnerships. And it can't be, I know you, Jim knows Tamara, Tamara knows Jim. So we call each other and I say, hey, could you come out and look at this building for me? Because it's kind of, it can't be that. It has to be a new way of doing business. It has to be a model where the bones are set in place, where there is consistent communication and interaction between all of these partners at the city level. And you're not gonna get to that without a champion. And that's usually your city manager, mayor, somebody who says, no, this is how we're gonna do business. And it is going to be a holistic approach, a holistic governance approach to public safety in order to get this done. That's great. Hey, again, I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, we're going to post a couple of links under the show notes so our listeners can find out what you're up to, your research, your book. Um, what are you up to these days? Real quick. I, I just accepted this phenomenal phenomenal uh, position at the National Institute of Justice. And for those of you who aren't familiar with all of the alphabets, the DOJ alphabet soup, that is DOJ, BJS, BJA, NIJ is the research arm of the DOJ. So they're the ones responsible for generating new knowledge, funding the research that gets things done. Well, I am now helping the new director, Dr. Nancy Levine, with her evidence to action initiative. So getting evidence and science into the hands of decision makers and those on the front lines so that they can make better decisions, data-driven, evidence-based decisions about how to best approach crime and disorder in their communities. Well, that's great. They couldn't have picked a better person to go there and do the research. So valuable, so needed, um, evidence-based, not random. Uh, we've got to convince people uh, that we have some some science and data behind uh, the work that we're doing. Thanks so much for, for what you do. Thank you. This has been so much fun, Jim. Thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, to our listeners, uh, check out Dr. Tamara Harold's uh, articles, her book, and, uh, and the link. And uh, I'm sure you'll find it fascinating. Uh, you can just tell from today's interview, she doesn't talk uh, like an academic that needs translation. She's, you know, ridden in the cars, seen it, talked to cops, and she's done an outstanding job putting it on paper. And uh, let me know what you think. Shoot me an email at policingmatters at police1.com. Email at policingmatters at police1.com. Take good care. Hope to talk to you again real soon. I'm Jim Dudley. 